Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill coming to you from the offices of The Intercept in New York City, and this is a special bonus episode of Intercepted. The Trump presidency is itself a provocation. Donald Trump is a billionaire, a reality TV star, a congenital liar who is seemingly addicted to a social media app, which he uses to live tweet his responses to a morning television show. The public is often bombarded with this phenomenon of Trump's inner thoughts being pushed to mobile devices and computers, not only by Twitter, but by pretty much every news outlet on the planet. And there's good reason for that. Trump controls an arsenal of nuclear weapons. He has the power to authorize covert action, and he has vast surveillance capacities at his fingertips. Trump also brought with him to Washington a team of radical ideologues and outsiders, people like Steve Bannon, Stephen Miller, and my favorite, Sebastian Gorka. Trump's attorney general, Jeff Sessions, has a long history of racism, including, according to his former associates, using the N-word, and, quote, joking about joining the Ku Klux Klan. Trump has given encouragement to white supremacists and neo-Nazis, at times through his public statements and at others by what he doesn't say. And Trump is the master of the dog whistle. See, for example, Trump saying there are good people on both sides in the aftermath of the horrible white supremacist violence in Charlottesville. Or how Trump and his acolytes constantly talk about violence in Chicago as a substitute for the racist perspective that they seem to only want thinly veiled. Trump calls black athletes sons of bitches. He said the shooter in Las Vegas was probably smart and constantly portrays undocumented immigrants as a collective group of gang members, rapists, and murderers. There's no doubt that the way Trump talks and tweets, the people he's chosen to surround himself with, the policies he's announced or implemented, these are all evidence that this is a dangerous administration. But how dangerous relative to past U.S. presidents? If you talk to many Democrats on Capitol Hill these days, Trump's the most dangerous president in U.S. history. He's also given rise to a new alliance of discredited, hawkish neocons and MSNBC hosts and analysts. Former directors of the CIA, NSA, DNI have all clamored to condemn Donald Trump and assure the public that these heroic spy agencies are protecting the country from the madman inside 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. But is Donald Trump really the most dangerous president ever? 
Is he really so outside the norm of the policies of his predecessors? The short answer when it comes to substance and policy is not yet. Harry Truman dropped not one, but two nuclear bombs. Multiple presidents continued the war on Vietnam, killing tens of thousands of US soldiers and more than a million Vietnamese. Have we forgotten the secret bombings of Cambodia and Laos, the CIA's Phoenix program, and the widespread use of Agent Orange? George W. Bush and Dick Cheney implemented a global torture network. They began shipping people that had been snatched from countries across the globe to the Guantanamo prison. They invaded Iraq and Afghanistan, conducted mass surveillance operations, including against Americans. The list of horrible presidents who have caused unimaginable death and destruction across the globe is vast. Now, none of this absolves Trump one bit, but it is important to keep perspective rooted in fact and history. There's a particular risk in erasing the line between horrible things Trump does as president with horrible things that the U.S. has done for a long time and then acting like it's all Trump. It's a complicated conversation to have, but it's one that we should be having. It means exploring the roots of white supremacy in the U.S., the way American wars are constantly put through a laundering process to make them seem noble and brave, the way real American has been defined and continues to be defined in our society. For eight years, we had the first black president in U.S. history in the White House. And now we have a reality TV host who spends a great deal of time tweeting and watching TV. So what is unique to Trump and what's embedded in the politics of empire in the U.S.? Professor Nikhil Paul Singh has spent years studying trends in U.S. policies throughout history, both domestically and internationally. He is professor of social and cultural analysis and history at New York University. His latest book is Race and America's Long War. He is unafraid to take on the golden calves of American exceptionalism and challenges us to examine both the forest and the trees of American empire. Professor Nikhil Singh, welcome to Intercepted. Thanks for having me. I, I want to start off by talking about one of the big themes in uh, in your latest book, the link between war making and what you call race making. Explain that. You know, I start the book with an epigraph from one of my favorite thinkers who's not that well known, a civil rights activist named Jack O'Dell. And he, he said that the great through lines of American history run from the slave plantation to the ghetto and the frontier to the Pentagon. So he's really thinking about frontier war making as a kind of formative national experience and then an internal security project that's focused on a kind of anti-insurrectionary uh, project aimed at slave revolts essentially, but against a population that is seen as potentially threatening that's internal to the republic. So both both of those are, are projects that are defined in terms of state violence and war making that are fundamentally about alien populations, one on the border, one in the interior. And so thinking of those as through lines, thinking of those as kind of origin stories for the formation of the United States that have um, a kind of a long durée is something that I'm interested in and I'm kind of tracing in various ways throughout the book. What, what do you mean by the phrase race making? Race making, I mean the creation of populations, groups, uh, 
whose whose alienage or whose difference uh, becomes understood as constitutive of a relationship between um, them and another group, right? So by calling it race making, I'm trying to highlight the fabrication of racial difference, to not see it as something that is, is somehow inherent out there in the world, but something that has to be produced by constituting divisions among people, often people who actually live together in the same social space. Um, it's something that is that happens through the passage of laws. It, it, it happens through uh, the restriction of movement. Uh, it happens through um, the allocation of resources. Uh, but in a really fundamental way, it, it happens through the distributions of violence. And that's really what I'm arguing in, in the book. There, there's a, a, a sentence that I, or two that I want to read from the book and ask you to expand on it. Um, you write, the common sense view that overt, racially targeted state-sanctioned violence is now unacceptable and a social problem leads to assessments that deem such violence, for example, police shootings of unarmed black men and women, as arising from justified fear, accident, or individual error, rather than a structured and structuring public mechanism and investment. So commenting on that, I'm I'm thinking about how we're we're addressing a situation where we now have a, a an increasing consciousness partly due to movements around Black Lives Matter uh, that there is a, a there's a a widespread phenomenon of police killing uh, of civilians, uh, often unarmed civilians and that it's just dis disproportionately um, African Americans who are the victims of this violence, although not just African Americans, obviously. And there's, if you really look at numbers for Native American populations, you find those are disproportionate as well. So, so you can you can see um, breaking down police killings across racial lines that there are all these these uh, these disproportions. But the overall numbers are also staggering um, for an industrial democracy. Let's say um, so. So. Um, in the United States now, though, we operate well. It's it, it's this is a little tough to parse because of because of Trump, but we tend to operate within a, an understanding of of publicly sanctioned racism as, as something that's been receding. Um, that it's it's normatively unacceptable. We had a black president. Uh, we had a black president. Um, we um, we we believe in inclusion. We believe in tolerance, um, and above all, we believe that our justice system operates fairly, which obviously extends to the police. So when the police kill, look at there's so, there's there's a, a, so many black and Latino Chicago police officers. That's off. That's the response from the police unions in Chicago to these very questions. You've also had the diversification of these institutions on along racial lines. Exactly. Um, so, so how do you square these two stories? How do you square the 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 excessive force and violence of the police, on aggregate, the racial disproportionality of that story, uh, with the kind of public story that wants to tell us that we are a constantly improving society organized around the rule of law, justice, and inclusion? Um, you square that story by essentially saying that these are these are uh, events that happen in error, they happen by accident, um, they, uh, they happen because uh, a policeman was afraid, 
justifiably so, and that's when the narrative starts to creep into something else, and you start to see how the sort of demonology of uh, the the black criminal or the the dangerous uh, subject um, kind of comes into the, the the defense or the rationalization, right? So that's where I think what what gets rationalized away as a um, as a um, as as something that 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 has no real systemic reason, right? Has no structural reason. Sort of begins to be made visible as something that actually is structured, right? It is structured into our understanding of criminality. It is struck race that is is structured into our understanding or structures our understanding of the criminal, of the threatening, of the of the other in a way that um, that that is is part and parcel of why. There is this level of violence. Hasn't hasn't uh, that notion that you're describing of fear as a justification? Hasn't that always been used? Uh, I mean, if you look at uh, so many of the lynchings that that occurred uh, in the United States and and uh, and killing of of uh, young uh, black men uh, through uh, means other than lynching them, uh, it's they were whistling at a white woman, or we're sure that they were probably going to try to rape the white woman. I mean, it's it's almost like there's what I'm reading is that it's 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 kind of a more sophisticated deployment of the same justification for murdering people. Yeah, I think American violence is almost always understood in uh, defensive terms. Um, maybe at some level, it's understood in retributive terms that it's a, it's it's a sort of a it's it's a sort of a justifiable punishment. Um, but it's understood as having a rationale and logic um, that is um, that we can explain to ourselves um, in a way that uh, that amplifies our sense of our virtue. Right? What do you what do you make of the uh, now it's been going on for a while, but it seems to be coming to somewhat of a head. The discussion about gay men and women serving in the United States military and the question of whether the uh, military is is going to allow for government funded uh, gender assignment surgery. What uh, what's your view of uh, of that? Because I, I sort of look at it and and I and I sort of think, well, is it a good thing that 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 there there's this idea that we have a rainbow colored military that's going to be slaughtering people across the world? Yeah, it's something I think about a lot, in, and it's something I think about a lot in the book, which is that that the military and the national security state. Um, especially since, say, World War II, has been this kind of engine of inclusion, um, that it, it has been at the forefront. I mean, it was at the forefront of racial integration, of course, under social pressure. It didn't just happen automatically. Um, and and now we see the extension of that into questions around women in combat or gays and lesbians or trans people in the military and the various ways the military is going to continue to be or, or not, because it's still contested, an agent of diversification. Um, and this is a tricky this is a tricky thing for us to, to 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 work through because now that story of of diversification and inclusion is enlisted in the project of empire. Um, the project of empire clearly once had a, a a very a very naked kind of racist face. You know, it was about the white man's burden. It was about benighted peoples. It was about you know the inferior, lesser breeds, and so forth. In the kind of language of the say the British Empire or the American Empire before World War II, but after World War II, you really see how this um, this kind of uh, notion of, of of a kind of a 
uh, an inclu a, a kind of racially inclusive or multicultural imperial machine uh, begins to develop. And I, I'll never forget that moment. And I write about it in the book right before uh, the Iraq War, where you know the liberal Canadian politician and historian Michael Ignati, I've said, you know, the the reason that the United States empire is 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 justified, if we even want to call it an empire, is that it it is not built on conquest and the white man's burden. And then you have these moments where um, where trotting out the kind of multicultural face of the American military becomes kind of a confirmation of that. And I'll never forget this this moment early in the Iraq War, watching a frontline episode. It was almost like one of those episodes from an American war movie where you see the kind of multicultural platoon out on patrol. It's like a, a Latino guy, an African-American guy, a white guy. And there are some Iraqis in handcuffs by the side of the road. Um, they had um, they had like stolen some milk or something, and uh, they had a car, and the car was the mean their means of their livelihood. I think they were basically like delivery people or taxi taxi drivers, and these three guys are interrogating them, and and then um, all of a sudden they say, well, you know, because you did this, um, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to exact a kind of punishment, and they basically take their um, their their armored vehicle and like crush the guy, these guys' car, right? And it's like this kind of it's it's this kind of moment of of sort of, you know, they don't kill them, but they they steal their livelihood, they 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 enact collective punishment, all in the all in the sort of the sort of image of their own righteousness, you know. And it, it's such it's so clearly this moment of kind of horror for the for a viewer like me. Um, where you know these guys are in their own country, their country is under occupation. They're trying to eke out a living, and here they are, like facing retribution from this military machine with a multicultural face. Um, and you know it's really kind of become an alibi, right? It, it be, it's become an alibi for 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 the empire, um, which has still which still operates in some in its other face, right? With the notion that it is. Um, it is it is policing and disciplining an inferior people, right? So even if the multicultural and inclusive face sort of has 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 sort of emerged as a kind of form of justification or or legitimation for the American military, um, there there is still always this other side, this other side that constructs the enemy, right? As somehow benighted, inferior, uh, uh, congenitally sort of constituted as, as a threatening population. And that is part of the kind of the kind of underside, the sort of history of race making, to go back to the earlier point, um, that I, I, I want to sort of uh, sort of foreground as a kind of insistent part of the rationale and logic of, of, of how the United States fights in the world. One of the uh, the themes that that seems to kind of run through your book is this notion uh, that the US is an empire. And you sort of reluctantly agree to use that uh, that term in the in the book, but uh, the way that you talk about the language that's used uh, in official American history to talk about war and uh, American wars, I, I, th I think it'd be interesting to kind of give some examples of how various U.S. wars have been described and 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 talked about, and sort of what is drilled into the heads of of kids in this country when it comes to war. 
It's a, it's a funny, again, it's a, a, one of these funny paradoxes, which is to say that the, the language of war is ubiquitous, right? You know, we have, we've had wars on drugs, wars on poverty, wars on crime, a uh, cold war that lasted for, uh, for, for 40 years, a war on terror that now we're told is going to last for another 40 years. You know, so the language of war is, is ubiquitous. But on the other hand, the United States hasn't declared a war anywhere in the world, really, like formally since World War II, right? So there have been police actions. There have been various kinds of of, of, of military authorizations. Global contingency operations right. was Obama's right. favorite term. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's it. So, so these sort of euphemisms for something that is not war, even though the popular discourse is all about war. Um, and then sort of sort of think about the kind of the kind of the kind of earlier history, um, a continuous history of of fighting Indian wars that were not understood or recognized as wars. They were really again seen as contingency operations. They were seen as um, as the operations of kind of kind of semi or quasi authorized settlers. You know, there there were there were clearing operations. They were they were really kind of a, a kind of an ongoing counterinsurgency project. Well, and one of the right. most murder ethnic cleansing campaigns to use a, a term that the Clinton uh, you know people really love to deploy I mean right that is what happened here that, that is what happened yeah. here that people, is. people from uh, elsewhere got off uh, their boats onto the shores and almost instantly started an, a mass extermination ethnic cleansing campaign of anyone that wasn't a, a European quote-unquote settler exactly exactly and then you know and then in the context of of at least initially having to confront indigenous people as a as a as a real counterforce you know having having temporary agreements that were then constantly broken and once the balance of forces shifted um, any acts of violence by by Indians in defense of their land or in defense their their kind of customary rights uh, was was increasingly de described as crime Right, so you have the kind of translation of sort of a language of of sort of co-equal combatants who have certain kinds of rights um, into a kind of asymmetrical language in which one party has the right of war, and the other party is um, essentially um, seen as kind of a, the party of a sort of asocial violence that needs to be disciplined, exterminated, sequestered, what have you. Um, and so there's a reason, you know, why that history becomes so prominent again in the, in, the, in the war on terror, because it's almost the same kind of language. You know, and I remember early in the war, there was this, this whole debate about, you know, the sort of the, the civilized thing to do was to describe, you know, Al-Qaeda as a criminal operation as opposed to, you know, kind of kind of to think of this in the language of war. But in fact, all parties on the U.S. side agreed what needed to be done. You know, in some ways, this was a sort of th this semantic distinction between between whether they're 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 uh, their enemy combatants or whether they're criminals doesn't really matter because both kinds of languages um, sort of deny them any kind of standing as um, as actual parties to a war, right? So, so in a strange kind of way, we, 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 we've inflated the language of war, and then we've sort of hidden the idea that we that that sort of war is is kind of our our modus operandi in the world. Well, and 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 it's it's incredible in, in this country. You have um, a, a there's a media culture. Uh, particularly on cable news channels, but also in the the you know on the pages of the papers of records, uh, that dictates that you have to accept uh, two primary 
factors in order to talk in a reasonable or responsible way about war. The one hand, you have uh, that the, the U.S. motive is always based on some benign interest, that it's a humanitarian intervention or it's to stop a, a despot or a dictator from threatening world stability, or it's that a particular country is pursuing a weapons of mass destruction program. And then the other uh, a factor that I've noticed that needs to be present is you have to agree, if, you, if it's not already natural to you, to a self-induced sort of um, amnesia. Uh, about how we we ended up where we are, like in Syria today, in Iraq today, in uh, in Iran, in Somalia, all these countries, Pakistan, around the world, that the United States has played an active role in creating the conditions we see today. It's like you you erase all of that and only talk about the narrow question that officials in the U.S. pose: Is it right or wrong to try to stop country X from pursuing weapons of mass destruction. It's it's like a it's like the a, a massive version of the ticking time bomb scenario that everyone wants to have when it's like Jack Bauer is going to save us from Al Qaeda by ripping someone's fingernails off. I mean in a way that is a byproduct of this bigger American mentality of amnesia and then always assume beneficence on the part of the empire. Absolutely. I mean there's you're, you're sort of pointing to two things. Uh, on the one again, the the wars are defensive. American wars are defensive. Um, so and they're in the general interest, right? So they're not they're not motivated by a by a particular American desire for power, for resources. Um, they're not connected to any sort of past history of involvement or engage, engagement that may have produced enmities or conflicts or or destabilization. Um, they're always about um, about creating security and creating the rule of law, right? So, so the acts of destabilization that have gone into producing the conditions of insecurity that then are sort of understood to be the motivation for the intervention are completely erased. Um, and then the continued destabilization that is constituted by the intervention um, becomes the kind of the kind of stuff of like debate and sort of hand wringing, you know, until the next time that an intervention is planned and demanded, right? So, so it's a, it is a rinse and repeat cycle, right? That we're in, and it and it and it, and it really does kind of go back to uh, the, this this much earlier history, I think. To your in your study, have you ever come across a U.S. war that you believe was actually defensive in nature? That's a really really good question and a hard question. I would actually have to say no. Um, even World War II um, was in many ways built upon uh, threat inflation. Um, it was built upon um, arguments that, um, that were later proved to be false about the ways in which the United States was actually threatened. Um, and when you think about the rationale for World War II, you know, when, when Roosevelt says we, don't, we can't be an island in a, you know, in a, in a in a sea of tyranny in the world, essentially, I mean, the, the thinking that's going into the intervention of, in World War II is is that we're going to become the world ordering power after this war, and that our security is now going to be bound up with being involved in every part of the world. And I think it's Dean Acheson who says to Truman a few years later, there is no concept of security that is local anymore for the United States. 
you know, and 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 that that's a new that's a new thing, right? That's a new idea, but but that is that is an idea that is um, that is not actually about um, a sort of a sort of a national defense. It's actually about something else. Well, and you also, I mean, you know, arguably, uh, you know, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. The United States says, oh, that's when we officially got into the war. But I always push back when people try to to start a debate or a discussion about World War II and the U.S. role, it's often that they want to start with the invasion of Poland uh, by Hitler and the Nazi forces rather than going back uh, a decade and looking at how powerful elites in the United States, financial institutions, supported the rise of Hitler. If you look at the way the New York Times reported on, on Adolf Hitler, it was clear that the United States did not view him as as some sort of a massive threat. And in fact, the United States turned away refugees that were fleeing, not unlike some of the discussions we see today about Syrian refugees. But that's like an untouchable subject. You can't talk about U.S. support for fascism, both through its own activities or inaction in the case of uh, the rise of Franco in Spain, when the United States said, we're neutral on this because neutrality meant you're backing General Franco. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think I think to to any way challenge the notion that the US is a benign world ordering power is to break from a kind of ideological sort of monolith. I mean, it's not even just a consensus. It's kind of a, you know, it's 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 the it's it's the really it's the equivalent of kind of what we used to condemn as you know Soviet ideology, right? It's a, it's a kind of it's a kind of axiomatic. I mean, I yeah. sort of consider it, it's they're like flat earthers. You yeah, know? I mean, it's sort of yeah. like what do you mean the U.S. wasn't the most beneficent savior in the world that that stopped uh, all of us from living under the the, the Nazis. Nazi yoke? Right, exactly. And 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 also, I mean, it's it's such an incendiary topic to raise in this country when you go to almost any public event, whether it's a uh, a graduation at a at a high school or a middle school, a sporting event, someone is going to invoke the heroic nature of the World War II record uh, of the United States. It happens, uh, and it happens Republicans, Democrats, across the board, everywhere. It's like our society is dripping in it. And as I read your book, I, I was sort of thinking it's such a great uh, pushback to this notion that being born an American means you are born into the greatest nation that's ever lived, the country that saves the world. I mean, it really is uh, like a non-starter, if you disagree with that, in the mainstream of American discourse. Absolutely. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, in, in, in this book and in some of my previous work, I really go back to the black radical tradition in thinking about World War II in particular. And I, and I, I use this quote somewhere from, from Langston Hughes, where he talks about, you know, we 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 hate Hitler as much as anybody, but we also want to defeat what he calls our native fascisms, you know. And and for African Americans, you know, that notion that World War II was would require a double victory, a victory against fascism abroad and also against racism at home, you know, became a very sort of a sort of a sharp critique, right? It was a refusal to prioritize, you know, something like kind of national security citizenship. Um, at the expense of um, the fight for justice at home, for one thing. Um, and it was also a ref 
refusal of the idea that the United States was somehow, again, like a coherent sort of moral entity as opposed to actually a deeply divided imperial society internal to itself, one riven by these kinds of histories of, of, of kind of racial violence and sequester and separation and dispossession um, that actually were not distinct historically or conceptually from the kinds of acts that the Nazis themselves were engaged in. And in fact, you know, if you know, some historians have really shown this very effectively that that for um, you know, for national national socialists throughout the 1930s are reading about American Jim Crow law to like figure out how to write the Nuremberg laws. I mean, they see the United States as an example. Um, when when they cross the frontier into um, into Eastern Europe, they're talking about Eastern European Slavs as the equivalent of redskins. You know, there's a there's a kind of um, there's a kind of way. I mean, not that we want to elevate the the Nazi example as some kind of um, you know s some kind of sort of touchstone, but there's a way in which in the in the history of the world, you know, in the history of kind of racialized colonialism in the world, the United States has been a always been a major player. Um, and so the idea that that history is, is suddenly wiped away by the fact that the United States fought against fascism in World War II is really just, um, you know, it's just a kind of a kind of a laundering of, of, of a much longer history. And it's a much longer history that is it is actually not going to go away. So it's it's kind of like, how do we square these things? This is not about saying that the United States is the source of all the world's evil or anything like that, right? Or or even that the world isn't a complicated and dangerous place in which you might actually have to think about the use of force. I mean, we could have that conversation, right, Jeremy? I mean, we could have if we were going to have a serious conversation about um, how to think ethically about the about American power in the world. Well, we can right? have that. This is part of the point I'm getting at. We can have that conversation about World War II. If right, you don't exactly. start the history of World War II at 39, if yeah. you want to talk about, you know, because it's always like you'll be on a, in a debate and this has happened to me on television before where someone will say to me right now on the spot, yes or no, should we have stopped Hitler? Right. And I'll, I'll say I reject the entire framing of that question because it, it it asks me to engage in an act of incredible erasure of of everything predating the invasion of of Poland, and and I but I feel like that's always the case. Is there a such entity as Al Qaeda that does want to kill uh, American uh, Americans, Westerners, etc.? Yeah, there is. I I would love to have the conversation about how do we take away the motive or the justifications that these people use to their own base to justify their acts of violence, but it requires a real reckoning with American history. And, and and that's what's not allowed. Well, that was the amazing thing after 9-11. And it's hard to believe sometimes that 9-11 is like 17 years ago, you know, because, you know, it's still sort of, it's just like a, created like a total miasma, right? It's well, and like, think of how many, right? how many young people grew up 9-11 is their entire reality. That's entire their entire reality. frame of, of what's going on right. in the world is, right. is shaped by 9-11 and nonstop war. That's right. And remember the one thing that was disallowed right from the beginning of 9-11, you could not make an argument that there was motive. You could not make a, an argument that the people who committed that act might have had some even kernel of rational grievance that motivated it. Uh, you could you could not. You just could not have the conversation. It could only be the act of what became called terror, right? Well, and, and just, I mean, to put a finer point on what you're yeah. saying, 
if you look at the the targets that were chosen, I mean, the the, the Pentagon clearly a military target. Uh, the plane in Pennsylvania uh, that went down uh, was either heading toward the White House or the Capitol. And then you hit the World Trade Center right in the heart of financial power in the United States. Now, it's dangerous to even go down this line of talking about it, but I think the point that you're making is there. we have to remove any sense that uh, that people on, who are the others are motivated by a set of their own grievances that we may have played a role in creating. Rather, we can only look at it uh, for the crime that was committed. It was civilians were killed. End of story. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And the only answer, the only answer that we can engage in in response to that is our own kind of traumatizing violence, right? So 9-11 was a kind of traumatizing violence for Americans, to be sure. And that was it by design, right? Um, but the response to that can only be a kind of traumatizing violence, you know, and as opposed to some approach that might actually be uh, reparative, you know, um, and and there may be there may be uh, you know the need for coercion. There may sometimes be the need. I mean, I'm I will I will admit this as a sort of into the frame of the conversation, but only if we can actually have the conversation. You know, it's really really hard to have the conversation. And of course, what we have done now for the last seventeen years is to commit a kind of traumatizing violence all over the world, um, which and to to if anything strengthen the very possibility of long-range terrorist networks with motive and grievance uh, that we were ostensibly setting out to eliminate. So, so on its face, it's a failure, right? In its own terms, it's a failure. Um, but we're left with a situation where we're, we're asked to basically believe that the only response now is to continue down the same road, right? Um, not to actually try to pull back and think about what it might what it might mean to think differently about the kinds of relationships we're in with people in different parts of the world. It, it's um, you know you write a good deal about uh, about Obama's presidency um, in this book, and you have addressed that in a, in, a, in a much more extensive way in previous work. Um, but on on the issue of uh, of Obama and how he talked about the killing of civilians, I'm sure you recall uh, when Obama. Finally, publicly came out and and expressed some sense of regret over the killing of people in drone strikes, and it was when white Westerners, including an American citizen, were killed in in, in strikes that Obama said were were, were mistakes. Um, but the 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 overall way that Obama and his team talked about the issue of civilians being killed was was always one of moral superiority. We don't intend to kill civilians the way when we bomb a hospital, we didn't mean to do that. When we bomb a wedding party, we didn't mean to do that. See, that's the difference between us and Al-Qaeda. We didn't mean to do it and they do right. mean to do it. Right. Which by the way, that's bullshit. The United States has intentionally killed civilians of and they've course. said, "Okay, uh a terrorist in, is in this building, we want him dead. There happen to be 30 other people in there. Boom, they die today." You know, that's 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 cold, crass warmongering right there, and it's war crimes. But but Obama really spent a lot of his moral capital with the base trying to convince people that the benign nature of of of, of American war making makes us morally superior to those who fly planes into buildings uh, or shell a school. 
Definitely. You know, and I think this is an old debate, again, even going back to like the Vietnam War and the sort of origins of American counterinsurgency, you know, the idea that that we act with a minimum of violence, you know, that, that we we through our very careful. De- Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Liberative kind of rule bound process, we come we come to a, the the sort of absolute minimal threshold of necessary force, um, and that is what makes us um, kind of morally superior. So it's both about the the following of a rule, and it's about the minimization. Uh, and I've I always find it extraordinary because of course you're right that that it it. it Oftentimes the calculation is probabilistic. It's like there might be one terrorist. So if we do this and take them out and there, there are other casualties, it is collateral damage. It's not intentional, but it is entirely foreseeable. So what does it mean to say that we commit mayhem that is not intentional but entirely foreseeable? How does that make us somehow morally less culpable? And thinking about it from the other side, from the eyes of people who are the victims of American power, of course, there's no distinction. Um, and 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 therefore, when when you turn around and try to look at American power through those eyes, what do you see? You don't see the operations of rule and the minimization of violence. You see the operations of a power that sees itself as able to act with impunity. Um, and to commit um, a kind of a kind of atrocity um, that um, has no sort of limitation to it that that is that is that is understandable within the terms of um, of those who are who are on the other side of it or the receiving end of it, right? You know, you know, we we um, uh, a couple of years ago we obtained these um, uh, secret documents detailing uh, how certain aspects of the uh, assassination program or drone program, whatever you want to call it. Worked under Obama, and 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 one of the I, I think most important uh, revelations to come from that is the kind of mathematical equation that has been used, uh, particularly under the Obama administration, to almost always produce the number zero uh, when it com- comes to the question of how many civilians are killed, and it's this idea that when people are killed in drone strikes and we don't know their identities, they are preemptively determined or categorized as enemies killed in action. And mm-hmm. only if they are posthumously proven to have been a quote unquote innocent civilian is that ever revisited. So it's it's not so much that that they know that they aren't killing civilians or they're trying to minimize it. It's that you or I or a human rights group or a journalist would have to go and prove 
that right. that the nine people that you didn't know the identities of in that drone strike that you killed uh, were actually civilians, and you only killed one person that you label terrorist, even though it has no legal de definition. To me, the the sophistication of Obama's le legitimizing or seeking to legitimize these kinds of operation is going to be with us for generations to come yeah. because he sold a lot of liberals and his base on this idea that he had come up with this magical, safer, cleaner way of waging war and that it's morally justifiable in a world where there's already too much war. That's right. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And you know, you've you guys have done amazing work around this and it's really, really valuable for all of us. You know, the thing, the other thing that I would add to what you're saying though, is, is that there's an interesting kind of flip side to Obama's sort of careful kind of prophylactic imagination around the, the sort of use of American violence. And that is that it, it sort of draws the ire of the right, right? So, 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 so Trump comes in and basically says, you know, we're going to take the gloves off because this hasn't worked. And now we're going to sort of free the commanders in the field to sort of use maximum discretion, and we've already seen what's what's happening with that. Discretion so sounds like a, like a, like a, almost like they're uh, they're being. I mean, I know yeah, what the word right. means, but it's yeah, yeah he's widened right. the, the rules of engagement right, so right. they can kill more civilians right. if they but, feel like yeah, it's necessary. Yeah, basically, yeah. take the gloves off, do what you need to do, you know, and and don't worry so much about it. Right. So, and that's seen as the kind of then the sort of the, the sort of adventurous spirit, the sort of the, the spirit that's really going to lead to victory. So you oscillate between these sort of poles, right? These poles of kind of we're 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 following the rules and we're being careful and we're just we're killing just enough of them to keep everyone safe. And then you know when that doesn't work, um, now we're going to take the gloves off. Nobody really thinks about trying anything different, right? And. And and you're right. Not only are we going to be with, with, is this going to be with us for a long a long time? But as we excavate the sort of history of violence in the future, we're going to find out things that we didn't know before. You know about the kind of the the consequences and the casualties. You know, I'm I'm thinking of like Nick Terse's work on on you know a mile a month in Vietnam. You know that that there are shrines all over rural Vietnam where where massacres occurred. You know, and where people that book's called Kill Anything yeah, That Moves, and it's a, right. it's amazing. It's a fantastic book, um, and you know this is not a this is not a well this is not a well known history and the use of body counts in the Vietnam War. I mean, the scale was bigger, so let's not make it identical, but it was a similar kind of obfuscating exercise. You know, it was it was always the enemy who was killed. Mm -hmm. I, I want to ask you briefly um, uh, about the way that uh, Native American imagery um, identity is used. Obviously, it's used in sports, uh, the team, the football team in Washington and, and, and other pro sports team. But it's it's so pervasive in the U.S. military that you you have the uh, uh, the Apache attack helicopters and then and the use of imagery of hatchets and tomahawks. Uh, tomahawks. The, the cruise missile is is called the tomahawk. And my colleague Matthew Cole did this series here that you cite in your book on on the the crimes of SEAL Team Six and um, the phrase "bloody the hatchet." And and you cite that article in in your book. And and there's a broader discussion uh, in your work uh, on the use of this nomenclature. But to talk about the way that Native American culture and imagery has been co-opted or, or snatched by the military. It's such an important topic, and I, I, I think it, it needs a, a vaster exploration. And it's about the imagery, but it's also about the kind of conceptual 
uh, role that um, that the Indian Wars play, or that the or that the iconography or the mythos of the Indian Wars play, you know, which is to say that sometimes you know you're fighting a savage foe. And when you fight a savage foe, you need to you need to loosen the restraints under which you fight. You need to learn to fight like a savage. Um, and that that sort of notion, you know, of savage war um, ha, is one of the deepest, you know, kind of organizing ideas of the American, you know, a democratic experiment. In fact, it is in some ways a democratization of war itself because it's about licensing individuals to engage in some sense as authorized um, representatives of the state on the frontier in certain kinds of ways. I think it sometimes informs the way that police think about the ways in which they operate. Uh, that there, there's sort of the line between um, civilization and, and you know, sort of it's, it's the sort of the sort of chaos on the on the outside on the frontier, you know. So the idea that that imagery then gets sort of brought in to the sort of the sort of highly technical kind of kind of weapon systems and other things to name them in the in the U.S. military is fascinating, right? Because oh, it, also Bin Laden was right? objective Geronimo. Oh, and, oh, yeah. Bin Laden was Geronimo. But the other thing that I talk about a little bit in the book is the ways in which this actually comes into the language of of, of really like high academia and high thinking about 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 just war and, and so forth. So just two quick examples, you know, right after 9/11, you know, the the, the sort of dean of diplomatic history historians, John Gaddis wrote a little book called Security Surprise in the American Experience, where he basically says, well, you know, we used to be, uh, we used to be people, we used to, we used to pursue rule-bound order, but, but there's this other tradition in American history, which is about the frontier. Um, and when, when, the, when the Bush administration launched the Iraq War, it was really that tradition that was important, because now it's not national frontiers, but it's the global frontiers of, of kind of civilized society. Society that are threatened by by terrorists and non-state enemies who are like the non-state enemies of the past, the Indians, the pirates, and other kinds of marauders. So he actually he actually isn't just drawing even just an analogy. He's really saying that that this kind of war in the past was justified um, in the name of civilization, and this kind of war now is justified in the name of civilization. And so it, it's it's really kind of extraordinary because it, it goes to your earlier point about how we erase history. Like the Indian wars were, were about civilization. That's primarily what they were about, as opposed to a, being about land hunger and a struggle over territory and resources um, in which violence became the mechanism and, and ethnic cleansing and erasure of one party became the mechanism for, for the triumph of the other. Is that really how we think about the world now? Is that really the kind of world we want to be imagining ourselves living in? And you know, Michael Walzer, who's a you know a liberal, um, who who wrote a, a book, uh, a very famous book about just war theory uh, after Vietnam. Um, he 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 makes the point at one point uh, in the book where he says, well, you know, there one of, one of the one of the times you can fight a just war is when you know that there's somebody out there who wants to kill you, and then he he his mind immediately goes to what he calls the the wild west the wild west of the of American fiction, you know, and I'm kind of I'm kind of scratching my head. I'm like, why would the wild west of American fiction be the framework that we want to use when we're thinking about how we would deploy power in the world, you know, and 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 Walzer's explicitly at that moment in his book writing about um, Israeli incursions into the West Bank, 
right? Which is really the settler project of our time, right? I mean, there's we we have we have an active settler project that's been going on, you know, since the 1967 annexations, which is one of the the greatest sore points, you know, around the world today. Uh, and then it's a an, it's a it's a project that the United States has put its full kind of faith and credit behind. Let, let's right? talk for a second. How yeah. <laughs> how would how would all of these uh, these settler wars in the United States have been uh, live tweeted by uh, by Democrats and Republicans? Here, I'll I'll start off with my with with a thought I had as you were talking, that um, today savage Indians attacked a stabilizing force sent in. Uh, to modernize and bring services to the state of Wyoming. <laughs> That's good. Your turn. That's good. Okay, let me try. Um, um, uh, today, um, uh, regrettably, um, a, uh, a, a settler party um, doing a land survey uh, to try to create um, uh, better water resources and, uh, and 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 to build a pipeline to to deliver. Um, uh, I'm terrible at this, Jeremy. I'm you don't sorry. have to. I, I yeah. was just. We don't even need to do that one. Yeah. All right, scratch. That'll be the Easter egg at the end of the episode. Sorry. Um, all right, no. Uh, uh, it was it was just something I was thinking. Yeah. Like, wow, it would be fucking crazy to think about how these dingbats would be tweeting about this stuff. Like, I mean, it would be. It really would, uh, I think, glorify the people moving west, um, and not not to mention the early stages on the East Coast. But as they move west, that this was this is all for the benefit of humanity, and the savages are attacking the people trying to help the world. Yeah, it's true. You know, the the difference between the liberals and the conservatives would be this. You know, the conservatives would say. Um, the conservatives would always say, you know, our people came under attack by savages and we um, we had to kill them. We had to wipe them out because, you know, it's us or them. And the liberals would say, you know, ah, you know, maybe we, maybe we did some maybe we did something wrong. You know, maybe, maybe some maybe maybe there's some kind of there's some kind of way in which. Uh, you know, we we could do a better job in 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 this exchange. Isn't that how we got reservations? Yeah, basically. I right. mean, isn't the idea? Yeah. Well, we're going to yeah. okay. We'll give you some territory we'll you here, and you can have your yeah. own laws right. to a, to an extent. And it's lamentable what's happened. That's the other thing that liberals will say. Like they'll say, you know, okay, it's all played out this way, and it's lamentable. Like John Jay writes a letter to Jefferson saying, you know, we're this is in the very early, you know, New York State. Um, frontier, and he says, you know, our Indians are, 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 I'm sorry, our settlers are killing too many people, and the native people don't like the avidity with which we uh, are, are are claiming their land. You know, but you know, what can we really do? There's nothing much we can do, you know, because these are our people, you know, and they are not, right? So it's kind of like, it's like. It's a bit of a like. There's a bit of a mea culpa. Like, let's throw up our hands. It's kind of like the way in which people, a lot of people, will treat like killing by the police. You know, what can we really do? You know, these these are our guys. You know, and they're doing the best they can under difficult conditions. You know, uh, sure they make mistakes sometimes. You know, but they're under a lot of pressure out there protecting us from civilization, protecting us from savagery. Right. Mm -hmm. So. You know, that's the kind of liberal response. And, you know, like, like, let's have some body cameras. Let's have a little bit more accountability. But no liberal is out there calling for, you know, uh, 
a strong civilian oversight of the police. You know, no one's calling for uh, taking away in a really substantive way police discretion, right, around w their use of force and violence. Right. I mean, it's right? more more often uh, aimed at we need uh, that the police force needs to more a accurately reflect the. Uh, racial or religious makeup of uh, uh, of communities, and and I wonder how you push back against or respond when people say, "Look, yes, th those extreme things, Professor Singh, that you're talking about, they happen. Everyone knows that they happen. Are we perfect right now? No, we're not perfect, but we just had two terms." of a black president. We came very close to having a woman as president. She got three million more votes in the popular uh, election than Donald Trump. Police forces across the country are aggressively recruiting and hiring uh, people of color, people who speak multiple languages. You know, yes, there still is, is racism, but look at all of the progress that we've made and how can you argue that America remains a racist country when a black man was president for eight years? Well, that's not a hard case to make because I think that if you, one of the stories, one of the arcs in the book that I'm trying to follow is the arc of mass incarceration or hyper incarceration, uh, which has, you know, led to a million African-American people in prison over, over 30 years. Uh, several, they commit a lot of crimes. That's what Steve Bannon would say, you know? Um, uh, and and that's what what others would say. Um, m m many, uh, you know, they, they need better fathers. Exactly, and Obama said similar things, right? Um, so the idea that we would produce the world's largest penal society, you know, larger than the Soviet Gulag ar archipelago, um, is somehow something that that gets that gets back gets back down in its fundamental explanation to <laughs> to basically the deficiency of like the slave descended population right even 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 for some liberals um, but I take I take a totally different view which is that mass incarceration is the product of um, an organized abandonment of black people that relates to a much longer history of confinement, of separation, of, 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 of lack of access to jobs and infrastructure and other kinds of benefits. And basically- and Economic independence uh, as well. I mean, yeah. We, yeah, we had Marissa Baradaran on talking about some of these same yeah. things. I mean, you're, yes, you're, yeah. you're on to something that I think we don't talk about enough. So, you know, these, these kinds of, um, these kinds of questions of the sort of, the sort of failure to resolve right? The failure to redress and again, to repair um, a long internalized history of racial violence um, that, that really comes out of slavery and Jim Crow and segregation, uh, ghettoization, um, and now mass incarceration um, is, is, is something that for me, prima facie, is the sort of, is the sort of evidence for a continuous Kind of, kind of internally racist history in the United States, for which the election of the of a black president um, was was not significant in 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 changing. I mean, I think Obama made some overtures, you know, the sort of the reduction of 
of, of, of some sentences for drug crimes, the sort of critique and, and, and rolling back at the federal level of certain kinds of mandatory minimums. You know, Holder began to make some kinds of uh, of Eric Holder, the Attorney General, began to make some kind of kind of modest reforms around the edges because I think there is recognition now that the carceral state is a failure, um, but um, the carceral state has done its damage. Right. Well, this is how in the book. This is one of the the passages on Obama. Uh, you said Obama quietly lowered the volume on the bellicose rhetoric and lightened the military footprint of the long war. He moved the mass deportation of undocumented migrants back into the shadows and inaugurated modest reforms of the drug wars and the mandatory sentencing guidelines that have been key to expanding the criminal punishment complex. Nonetheless, you write, Obama strengthened the interrelationship between the inner and outer wars, as well as their legal and institutional basis. By expanding the use of unmanned armed drones and targeted assassinations, Obama also added a new and terrifying dimension. Yeah, I, I, Obama, I, I was one of the people who, when Obama was elected, had, had actually had some hopes. I think the United States electing an African American to be president is a sign of, of, of some popular resonance of, of. An inclusive and anti-racist, um, I know. Let's call it public feeling. You know, I I, I think when you know, I'm not going to make a blanket statement. America is a racist country. It's 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 not really about a country being racist. It's about various kinds of social forces. You know, and 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 structures. And we have to be able to examine and analyze that. And obviously, this country in this country, these questions have also been contested. Slavery was contested. Jim Crow was contested. Um, when spatialized segregation and ghettoization was contested, the 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 result was was quite inconclusive. It did it didn't result in in in, in genuine any kind of genuine desegregation. And if anything, it set the carceral train in motion. But there are strong constituents in the constituencies in this country who would like to produce a more robust kind of social solidarity across racial lines. Well, and you say right? the labors of egalitarian and social transformation will fail if they do not frontally address the forms of human sacrifice and sundering of human commonality affected by state-sanctioned violence. That's right. I, I put the onus for the continuation. Of, of, of racist public policy and the structuring mechanisms that divide the population along racial lines in, in the domain of state power uh, and, and, and in, in the purview or field of action of state elites. That doesn't mean that ordinary people don't act in racist ways that, that, that have consequence. But I think ordinary people also um, act in non-racist or anti-racist ways that can have consequence. It's actually about how we organize public feeling and public policy in a way that directs us towards a widening conception of social solidarity and the kinds of policies that we would need to sustain that, right? And that that's really, in some ways, uh, where Obama kind of falls short, right? Because because he represented that kind of hope and aspiration. I think his election genuinely did. But in choosing to govern in the name of caution and continuity with what came before, in choosing not to seriously have a public reckoning with the record of torture uh, by the Bush administration, um, to, to not more frontally go after the kind of predatory um, lending 
that led to the crisis, uh, uh, the financial crisis, um, that were, was also very racialized, right? Um, was 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 really to choose to enact what I call in the book a kind of laundering operation, you know. And a lot of times, this is what liberals do for for, for reactionaries. They they kind of clean up the mess, but but without actually doing the kind of turning towards a sort of a sort of a different orientation. And you know, sometimes I think we need we need more. We we don't just need more struggle from our side. But we need to actually lay down some markers of our own because if Obama had gone after the the Bush administration torturers, maybe he wouldn't have succeeded. You know, maybe there w we wouldn't have gotten justice, but we would have had a kind of marker that we could have looked to and sort of said, "Look, look, we tried to hold some people to account here." You know, and the thing is, the right understands this very well. The right understands that sometimes laying down a marker, even, even when it doesn't get what it wants, sets the terms for the next battle that it's going to fight. Obama's birth certificate. Exactly. I, I mean, mean I, I think of that. I, I mean, they, they knew they weren't going to go and get anywhere with that. And, and, and it was a huge part of the, uh, of the ascent of Trump. Huge part of the ascent of Trump. Meanwhile, Obama's deporting people en masse, strengthening the deportation machinery, giving speeches, really, uh, that are completely consistent with the language of criminalizing immigration violations. Why should immigration violations be, a, be in the domain of the criminal? I mean, these are basically, for the most part, people who are trying to, you know, make a living in the United States, many for almost a generation, right? Uh, they, they, this could be talked about in a completely different way. Why do we adopt the, the rights language that anyone here without papers is somehow a criminal? Why, why would that be the case? And now Trump, of course, accentuates the, the, kind of, the kind of occasional horrific criminal violation by someone who is out of status and uses that to kind of recursively characterize entire populations, right? Um, in order to sort of sharpen this idea of the divide between the, 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 the native born and the foreign born. I mean, I mean, the DHS now is even contemplating policies that are going to put green card holders and uh, people who are uh, naturalized citizens under a kind of um, a kind of extra burden of surveillance and pressure, uh, as if we—and I wasn't born in this country—you know—by virtue of our non-native status, are, are sort of kind of here, kind of at the at the at the beneficence of 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 kind of so the sovereign. You know, right. <laughs> um, it, it's really it's really a it's a really a scary time, and and I think people are kind of are kind of shocked, you know, and 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 some of the shock is good and some of and the outrage and the sort of the sort of anger and the the fight back. Uh, but the idea that sort of we somehow just kind of flipped a switch and got Trump in this kind of weird way um, that doesn't try to think about a longer story that takes us through uh, some of the failure of reckoning of the Obama years, and of course, the sort of, the, the pathway that the Iraq war put the country on, and even before the Iraq war, the pathway that the, the, the Clinton era sort of mass incarceration project put us on, you know, I think makes it really difficult for us to, um, uh, to make sense of what's happening right now and to make sense of the forces that Trump has been able to mobilize. What do you think is, the, is both the short-term and long-term impact of having uh, such overt racist rhetoric uh, attached to 
racist policy in the United States or to have someone like Trump who uh, seems to just thrive on the idea in his own head that he is the anti-PC guy, uh, but 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 really, you know, completely legitimizing, if not at times celebrating, acts of outright violent racism from the presidential podium, whether it's Twitter or a press conference. It's I I honestly don't know the answer, Jeremy. I mean, I think I I don't I don't. I'm not like one of the sort of the apocalypse is coming, you know. I mean, the apocalypse may be coming, which is, you know, the environmental apocalypse. There there are all kinds of things. Well, I keep saying I mean, to people, Trump, right. Trump's nowhere near murdering as many people exactly. as Bush and Cheney yet, but exactly. he's as scary in his own way. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, you don't really – you don't know with him when the when the, when the the shoe is going to finally drop, right, um, whether it's in North Korea or, 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 or somewhere else. There is a sort of a feeling of, of, of kind of anxiety – that I think is that people have that's legitimate uh, that I have that's that that I think but I think that that again the anxiety has been something that's being stoked in us for at least two decades you know that that, that Americans live with the expectation of violence you know uh, and we live with the expectation that our state will commit violence on a uh, sometimes perhaps even on a scale that is that is horrifying to us as Americans, right? Um, we live with that as a, as a sort of a constant. Whether that will come to pass under Trump is whether it's more likely under Trump. I think it. I think Obama did make it feel a little bit less likely uh, in certain ways. Even though I think part of the sleight of hand was, again, really about the the rhetorical cover or or not drawing as much attention to it. Whereas Trump always wants to put it in the foreground. But in terms of the kind of consequences of what Trump's doing, I mean, Trump is dangerous in the sense that I think he is, um, he's he's animating a, a kind of a notion of of American citizenship and native-born status and racial status um, as somehow um, either the equivalent of an entitlement to rule others um, or as something that has been dispossessed. And therefore, we need to kind of kind of reclaim it, you know. And I think that uh, that's a scary gambit, right? Because I think we were, in some ways, under Obama and before, and even 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 under Bush and Clinton. Because remember, W. Bush, you know, he wanted the grand immigration bargain. You know, he wanted a more multicultural and inclusive Republican Party. I mean, he had a very inclusive administration waging war overseas. To go back to the earlier points we were we were discussing. Um, I think there was a, a kind of a sense that that okay, the the white supremacy project, you know, which was such a huge sort of part of American history, is no longer really viable, you know. But I think Trump's trying to make it viable again. Well, you know, we 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 did an interview not too long ago with the the Nigerian musician uh, Shayon Kuti, whose father was Fela. He's the youngest son of Fela, and and we were talking about. Uh, about Trump, and he said something that uh, that was on its surface quite simple, but also has resonated with me, which is that you know all of this talk about Trump being more dangerous than anyone else is 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 bullshit. He's just unmasking who you guys have always been. Like he's he's sort of speaking plainly in a way about uh, you know I mean like he pretty accurately I think represents Andrew Jackson's worldview on a number of of key issues. And in your book, you you seem to bookend uh, your discussion uh, of warcraft and racecraft uh, with with Trump and that sort of Trump moment. Talk about that influence, though, that both he and Bannon have cited of Andrew Jackson, and he made these uh, Navajo code talkers that came to the White House. 
sit under a portrait of Andrew Jackson, but maybe talk about the way that you deal with Trump in the book and the yeah. Andrew Jackson question. Well, I think that, you know, Jackson really tied together the idea of, you know, America as a as a as a white man's democracy in which the in which kind of material accumulation through dispossession uh the dispossession of native lands um and an american state violence um and american civilization and prosperity um were were kind of yoked together you know they were uh, and and you know even to even 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 sort of liberal historians celebrated jackson in the sort of 40s and 50s people like arthur schlesinger you know as kind of uh, great democratizers you know and that really was bannon you know that really was kind of bannon's vision i, I mean bannon's kind of kind of odious figure but but it's at certain moments he would talk in ways of you know well, you know, native-born Latinos and African Americans are going to have a place at this table too. You know, so even Bannon could expand into a sort of a sort of inc inclusive language, but it was all about a kind of national possessiveness, um, and that possessiveness was 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 clearly understood as being linked to somebody else's dispossession. And if you didn't have the stomach to dispossess somebody through through force, if necessary. Um, you know, you weren't really uh, you you weren't really acting as a as a kind of proper American, and you know that really is a, a pretty stark kind of break from the language of of sort of Wilsonian internationalism. You know, where where we're 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 sort of creating a rule bound world where everybody thrives and 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 there's enough to go around, right? Um, it's it's a it's a really stark break, and and I think it's 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 interesting. Now, is that who Americans always have been, um, to some extent, for sure? You know, but 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 like I've said before, there are these you know there are these there are these competing currents. Um, as as we wrap up, I wanted to get your thoughts on this trend of paramilitarization of uh, of law enforcement or police, whatever you want to call the generic um, term. Uh, and you you cite in the um, in the book the work of Alfred McCoy, who we've had on this show and and has done a lot of work on the ground and in exposing the real history of the relationship between the United States and the Philippines and the U.S. Philippine War. Uh, and he used the phrase uh, that it was a laboratory of police modernity. And you know, at the intercept, we do a lot of reporting on the surveillance state, on not just the paramilitarization of the the troops in the street, but also the use of technologies that were created for the military or spy agencies like stingrays now coming home and being used uh, to patrol the streets for looking for quote unquote, street crime. How do you see the lessons from uh, what McCoy called the laboratory of police modernity and the surveillance state now as it manifests itself in communities around the United States? I think that we we're 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 evolving towards a nation in which um the people are seen as being in protective custody of a certain kind, right? Um, 
the this the numbers of incarceration incarcerated people we talk about is always something like around two million. And then when we think of the numbers of people on parole or probation, we get into like seven or eight million. And then we think of the 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 people who are related to the people who are on parole, probation, or incarcerated, and we get into, you know, the numbers of fifteen or twenty million. And then you think of the numbers of people who have who have been charged with a felony or arrested. And suddenly we're talking about you know, 70, 80 million American adults who have had some kind of primary relationship to the policing apparatus of the state, who are in some ways marked as potentially criminal. And the ways criminal violation is now used, right, as a tool of information, as a tool of stigma, um, as a tool of surveillance, as a tool to potentially uh, revoke someone's rights at a later point, particularly people who um, who have various kinds of uncertainties in their immigration status. Um, but you could imagine it being used or rolled out further than that. Um, it, it really is a, a tremendous technology of control. Um, and it's a technology of control, as McCoy shows, that was elaborated very profoundly in the long counterinsurgency war the United States fought in the Philippines. It was the first time you really saw the use of demographic information, photographic information, extensive informant systems, basically tracking the population, imagining the population as a potentially subversive population in which you had to begin to know how to sort people. Um, and you, at the very same time as you see that happening in the Philippines, you see the origins of crime statistics in the United States, which are especially targeting African-Americans internally. And I don't exactly write about this in the book, but Khalil Muhammad, who's written a book um, uh, on the history of, of, of um, what's, it's called The Condemnation of Blackness, fantastic book, part of which deals with the, the origins of, of crime statistics in the United States. Um, these these technologies, which have been kind of racially targeted and sort of elaborated within colonial contexts, are actually now being more generally applied to the population as a whole, right? And that's one of the the great ironies of the say the post-colonial era or the era of the American Empire and globalization is, and even the era of civil rights, right, or the era of formally inclusive democracy, is that what actually happens during these periods is not a, a general advance of rights, um, but, a, but an, a, a kind of a rhetorical advance of rights um, and, and tools that were once used against formerly rightless populations now being elaborated and used more widely um, in relationship to everybody else. You know, and I think that actually requires m much more discussion than we probably have time for. But it's it's uh, it's it's something of the danger that we 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 exist under now. And so when people talk about you know the threat to democracy represented by the authoritarian Trump, you know, I would say let's think over a, a longer period of the the sort of erosion of our of of a kind of a robust democracy by these kinds of um, these 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 sort of corporate powers and governmental powers that have really, really arrogated once, one, what were once thought to be the kind of sovereign rights of, of citizens. Well, we, we would love to uh, have you back to continue that discussion. Professor Nikhil Singh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Jeremy. It was a pleasure talking to you. Nikhil Pal Singh is professor of social and cultural analysis and history at New York University. His latest book is Race and America's Long War. His previous book, is race is a country.
And that does it for this special bonus episode of the program. If you are not yet a sustaining member of Intercepted, log on to theintercept.com slash join. Sam Samzazar is our honorary producer, and we thank him for his generous support. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. We're distributed by Panoply. Our producer is Jack Desidoro, and our executive producer is Letal Malad. Laura Flynn is associate producer. Elise Swain is our assistant producer and graphic designer. Our music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. Until next week, I'm Jeremy Scahill. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.